before we jump into this passage of, of Scripture, I just want to give a little update on some things we mentioned last week regarding some of the efforts uh, in what's going on in Ukraine. So first, and this was, for those of you who are online, you weren't able to see the video that was shared, but we're going to call uh, this person uh, Bob with the van. And so the missions committee made a, a donation towards a vehicle uh, for this person to travel. He lives in Europe to travel to Ukraine to help people who are fleeing the war areas to get to safe places, also delivering supplies. And there he is. And so uh, we mentioned that on Sunday. On Monday, he was able to bring his, the first of 10 passengers to bring them to safety. So he, so he crossed the border, uh, picked up 10 folks. So he met up with his buddy who speaks Ukrainian, which is kind of a key piece of that puzzle, and uh, dropped supplies. And so he's restocking, and they're going to make more border crossings and help people get to safe places and get the resources they need. So that's ongoing. What also happened last week is we were in touch with uh, Dr. Peter Kuzmich, who's been a global partner of Free Church for many years. He runs a seminary in Croatia. His seminary in Croatia is like six and a half hour drive to the border of Ukraine. He's got a number of Ukrainian students who are studying at his seminary, also graduates who are pastoring churches in the Ukraine. So, and Dr. Kuzmich also taught at the seminary I went to. So just think of, you know, young Pastors who go to seminary, they get placed in local churches, um, just like Pastor Dan went to Gordon-Conwell and I did, you know, where we would learn from someone like Dr. Kuzmich and go do ministry. They're now doing ministry, but their churches essentially are becoming waypoints for people who are fleeing the war areas. Um, you, their basements of their churches are not holding potlucks. I mean, they're, they're down there sheltering from explosions and they're describing the things that they're hearing and seeing. So missions committee had the budget that we approved last April, and they had some discretionary funds in there still. Uh, even though we're at the end of our fiscal year, they just pushed it out towards um, that good work. So going straight to those in need. Again, they're shuttling people um, to, from the border to places of safety and helping them get settled. Again, moving supplies. Some of their seminary professors are the ones driving the vans and and doing these runs. So there's a lot of good work going on. And, and because um, missions had the funds, the, dis the discretion to disperse funds to do that, they did that this week. So thank you for those. Yeah, amen. So because of that, um, again, there was, so there was some extra giving towards the end of the fiscal year. So if there was... Extra giving that went out, so if there was extra giving that came in this week, that would be fantastic. Um, as expenses and, and, um, and giving has been uh, holding fairly level, so we'd love to finish the year uh, strong with our missions giving. So. And then, you know, next week starts a new fiscal year. Oh, just kind of a mundane thing, in light, especially in light of this stuff. Um, so those of you who give with envelopes, we usually have them out this time of year, and you get your new box of envelopes. No joke, supply chain issues for everybody. We've, we, put, we ordered these things the same time we always do, and they are not, uh, they're, they're backed up too, like everything else. So 2022, praise God, here we are, uh, no envelopes. We'll figure it out, we'll get them, um, but we don't have those, some of those visual reminders. Um, 
Let's just pray, and we'll stop and pray. Father, for this good work that's happening, for people we know, um, it's, it seems very far away in some ways, and it, it seems also very close. And so, Lord, we just pray your blessing over the good work that's being done in the midst of the horrible things that are, are happening. We pray for an end of, of, of wars. We pray for peace in our world. But above all else, Lord, we know that this world is just in desperate need of you. So we pray that you would intervene, that lives would be saved, that goodness would be known. Father, as we turn to your word, we're considering these words that our Lord Jesus spoke that are, for many of us, right at the center of our faith. For others, perhaps, may not understand the significance and the weight of these words. I pray that for all of us, we would understand in a deeper way what happened here. Teach us during this time, we pray. We ask humbly, but we ask with confidence, knowing that you desire for us to know you. We give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our journey through the seven last words of Christ or the seven last sayings of Christ. These are the seven things that are recorded that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross. What you've seen so far is Jesus forgiving his enemies, Jesus ministering to the criminal next to him on the cross, and Jesus caring for his mother. This is Jesus ministering to others. Now in this, what we'll call the fourth word, He's ministering to you. He's saving you. In these words, we see an innocent man suffering and dying in your place. In my place. Jesus experiences God the Father turning away and he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is... Uh, this is weighty, but there's also a hundred theological questions that rise up when we hear these words of Jesus. You know, how could God be one? And Jesus had just talked about how the Father and he were one. And how could God the Son and God the Father be one and yet experience this type of separation? And, and what exactly was going on there? And so it's a very hard saying. And so when I study a passage like this, when I come across one of the hard sayings of the Bible, I have a lot of, the, a lot of resources in my office that I use. But I have uh, one resource that I particularly like. It's called Hard Sayings of the Bible. <laughs> and, um, and it's this thick. And I, I, I go to this often when I come across a, a tough one. And so I, I look up um, Matthew 27, and it says, see Mark 15. Okay, so I go to Mark 15. Why have you forsaken me? Okay, Mark 15, 34. This is, how it's, this is what it says. This is the hardest of all the hard sayings, period. And no joke. And then it has a whole article which doesn't really answer the questions that I had. And it kind of just focuses on, well, what, what do we know for sure? What does Scripture say? And that's what I want to focus on today. What, there's all these questions that are maybe impossible to answer, but there's things that are crystal clear here. And God wants us to see those things. So let's reflect on this. Again, this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. So when you think about all the you know, different faith systems of the world, this is what makes a Christian a Christian. What happened right here when Jesus cries out these, um, these words. And it's at the center of our faith. It changes everything. 
Uh, so let's take a look. So what brought this about? So here we have Jesus. Of course, he's on the cross at this point. This is the lowest point of this journey. We're maybe six hours into his crucifixion. So apparently a human who's crucified could actually live for multiple days, maybe a couple days, two, three days, on a cross. Jesus is right at the point, uh, right before he dies here. He doesn't, he doesn't last very long. The, the torment, the what's going on in the spiritual realm, but really the blood loss, the beating and the whipping and the, just all that he had been through up to this point. But in verse 45, we see that darkness came over all the land. So there's this strange kind of darkness. Whether there was some natural phenomenon, whether it was a supernatural darkness, we see darkness, and it's kind of eerie, and it's foreboding. We understand Old Testament prophecy, particularly, or specifically, Isaiah 13 says this. It says, The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, for the wicked, the wicked for their sins. So there's this prophecy that when wickedness and sin is punished, there's going to be darkness. And here we have Jesus, and we have this darkness. And then Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and it's recorded here in, in uh, Aramaic, or kind of a Hebrew Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's recorded not in the Greek, in which the Gospel of Matthew was written, but recorded in Aramaic, which would have been Jesus' normal speaking language, because it was, either because it was so loud, you know, Jesus cried it out so loud, you can't just write the Greek, because he didn't cry out in Greek. It was either so loud, or just because it's so important, to, this is exactly what he said. Uh, in, in, in Mark's gospel, it's Eloi, Eloi, which is more the Aramaic. Eli is more the, the Hebrew version of that. But the point is, it's, it wasn't in Greek. Um, it's preserved. Also, these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are, they, they echo. It's the same words that begin Psalm 22. So if you read Psalm 22, Old Testament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in a sense, there's a fulfillment of Psalm 22 here. And Jesus would have known these words, of course. And many who heard them would, would make that same association. That Psalm 22 is about a righteous person who suffers. And really a description of, of what was then fulfilled on the cross. But Jesus cries out these words, My God, my God, my, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus lose his faith in this moment? No, I mean, he's praying, my God, my God. So there's some sort of faith. He, and he, Jesus would know the end of Psalm 22 where there's vindication. But here Jesus is, is experiencing not a, a loss of faith, but a loss of contact. He's feeling a separation from God the Father. And it, it reminds us too, if you're, if you're here today, if you're angry at God, that's not, a, that's not losing faith. You know, if you're struggling in your prayer life, that's not losing faith. If you don't feel like worshiping today, that's not necessarily losing faith. Unbelief is something very different than that. But he's, ex he's expressing what he's feeling, this 
separation. Now, again, this is where all those theological questions that we can't answer um, are arising about how can the Father and the Son be, uh, how can the Father forsake the Son in this moment? Or at least Jesus feels that way. What is going on here, what Scripture does teach us clearly is this. Start back in the prophet Isaiah. Throughout Scripture, but specifically Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The truth is that sin separates us from God, from God's very presence. It's very simple. God is holy and perfect, and anything with sin is not holy and not perfect. The Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So you have God's glory and holiness, you have sinfulness, and they can't be in fellowship with each other. Right from the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. They are living in perfect fellowship with God. They sin, and they're banished and separated from God's presence. Again, God's people living as his nation, the nation of Israel. They are sinful. God cast them out of, into exile. And again and again, sin separates from God's presence. But what's Jesus experiencing here? 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we'll put this one on the screen, because this, is, this is, describes it as clear as can be. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment, Jesus was feeling the weight of sin, experiencing the separation from God that sin deserves. For the only time in all of eternity, Jesus feeling the separation from the Father, this tearing away. And again, this is mind-boggling because of the perfect oneness of the Father and the Son. But it's the horror and the magnitude of the consequences of sin that Jesus is experiencing. Remember the night before, he's praying, and he's praying so earnestly that drops of blood are coming out. He's saying, Father, if you could just take away this cup of suffering from me, but not my will, yours be done. And the fullness of that suffering on Jesus in this very moment, and he cries it out. And why did he cry it out? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you never have to cry that out? He said it so that you never have to say it. It's the heart of God to be with his people, his creation that he's made. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.5, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Echoed in Hebrews 13, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Again and again, we see that God's desire is to be with his people, but... Sin creates separation between a holy God and sinful people. Something has to be done. And because God is a just God, he can't just ignore it. It has to be paid for. It has to be taken care of completely. So Jesus takes sin on himself. He takes the punishment. The physical pain, yes, but it's this, the the torment of separation from God. He did it in your place so that your sin is paid for. And it's the great cosmic exchange of of all time. He receives your sin, you receive his righteousness, so that God can look at you forgiven and free, and he can declare you righteous before him. 
If you accept by faith what he accomplished, nothing, truly nothing can now separate you from God's love. It's all been taken care of right there. Therefore, you are not forsaken of God. You may feel that God is distant from you. You may be angry. You may, at God, for whatever loss or situation in your life, but you are not forsaken of God. Whatever you are experiencing is not what Jesus experienced. He experienced the true separation so that you don't have to. It means that you are never alone. As alone as you feel, uh, for whatever reason, that God can truly be with you because of this. And also, the whole point of God being with his people is that they don't have to fear. They can be courageous. You can be strong and you can be courageous because Jesus said these words, because he took it on. You never have to say them. And now, everything changes because of this. Three things right from the text here that jump out to us, that change. Um, So Jesus cries out these words and Matthew says he gives up his spirit. So his body dies and and Jesus' spirit uh, descends to to death, to to the realm of the dead. And so everything changes. Our whole approach to God changes. Verse 51 says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom. So our whole approach to God changes there. The, the temple, the whole point of the temple was that God's holy presence could be there. But there were barriers. There were literally curtains of barriers where certain people couldn't go. And into the most holy place, only special people at special times could go into this special place where God's holiness was. Now that's torn open. So God's holiness in his presence can be experienced at any time for any of us as we put our faith in him. You have access to God. It's wide open. Not just special people in special places, special priests, special seasons. No. That's why we say nothing is truly secular. Everything is sacred now. Not just special places, special times, but all time, all place, God cares about. And he's with you. And his holiness can be with you there. When you go to work tomorrow, God is with you. You can experience the holiness of God in that very place. When you get your kids off to school in the morning, God is with you. He care- and God cares about all those places and all those interactions and all the people that you see. Even, in, even when you recreate, even the silliest thing, I'm, tomorrow night I'll go to my cornhole league where we throw, adults throw beanbags at wooden boards. Some of you will be there with me. Um, that God cares about even my recreation. That it's not, just, um, it's not just meaningless. That God cares about the people who are there and how we interact and, and what happens and what he's doing there. Because there's no, we can't escape it now. But we don't want to escape it because God is with us everywhere. So our whole approach to God changes right in that moment. Because that temple torn wide open. Uh, secondly, our understanding of death changes. Um, the whole, there's a whole new understanding of eternal life, a whole new understanding of heaven and hell, which was not clear before this happened. So in verse 51 and 52, we have an earthquake. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Quick tangent, if you'll indulge me for just a second. This earthquake. So the piano concert on April 9th, this Haydn piece, has introductory music, and then we're going to read Christ's word, and then we're going to 
they're going to play the movement of this beautiful piece of music that corresponds to that word of to the seven words that Jesus spoke. But then the concluding piece is called earthquake, and it's the earthquake that happens after Jesus has said all these words. I don't know if you've heard it before. It's spectacular musically, and they're going to play. So uh, Fernando and Yerum are going to play the seven movements, and then the, that last earthquake they're going to play with four hands as a duet on the piano, and they're going to bring that final earthquake, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Please come. Bring your neighbors. This is excellent music, and bring whoever you can bring. We're going to jam this room. I give you permission now to take your phone out of your pocket to go to your calendar, April 9th, 7 p.m. Make sure you have a reminder, however much of a reminder you need. Enter that in right now. Um, But, okay, back to what changes here. There's an earthquake that happens, and people felt it. It's recorded. The tombs break open, and there's a mini-resurrection and it's, this is a little strange, and especially because only Matthew records this, but it's very important what happens. Um, and we got a little bit of a punctuation issue here, too. So if we can get verse 52 up here, it says, The tombs broke open, period. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, period. Verse 53, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I think better, what makes more sense, because it looks like they, the dead people were raised to life and kind of hid in these open tombs until the resurrection, and then they came out of the tombs, which is strange. It's already strange, but that's even stranger. I think uh, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tombs after the resurrection. They were raised and came out after the resurrection. The tombs cracked open at the earthquake. The reason why that's important Because Jesus, as he dies, we have a whole new understanding of life and death. And he is resurrected. And and the Bible describes that as the first fruits. He comes first so that the resurrection of everyone else can happen. And in a small way, there were some people who were raised to life after Jesus was raised. So Jesus is raised. These people get resurrected, come out of the tombs, and, and show themselves to other people to prove that that's going to happen for all of us by faith. Now, what's unfortunate is it doesn't tell us what happened to those people. Did they show themselves to people and then ascended to heaven like Jesus did? Or did they have to go back into their tombs? Like, hey, we'll see you. In the, you know, we don't know and we don't speculate. I just, there's, there's not much there, but it's important to see that, um, that it definitively shows that death is not the end of the story. We looked at this a little bit when we, we talked about Jesus promising the thief on the cross, they'd be together in paradise that same day. Before Jesus in the Old Testament, when you read about the afterlife, it's this place called Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, and it's kind of dark and shadowy, and it's a place of rest, perhaps, but it's just kind of a, a dark and gloomy place. We don't, it's not very specific. After this, and in the ministry of Jesus, he shows that this realm of the dead, so Sheol in the Old Testament, in, in the Greek, in the New Testament, maybe Hades is the best equivalent of this realm of the dead. But Jesus said, it's not all one thing, the realm of the dead, that there is Hades and there's paradise. And he told a story where he described that there was a huge chasm between where the blessed dead go, which is 
paradise or heaven and where the cursed dead go. And and so um, we have just this beautiful understanding that in death there is there is heaven and, and Christ is present there and there's there's fullness of joy and there's bliss and again awaiting the final resurrection where the new heavens and the new earth will be connected and we'll all be with the Lord forever. But that there's a beauty in, in, as for those who die in faith. There's no more sting in death. So before Jesus, it's all dark and shadowy. Afterwards, we say death has no sting. Death has no final victory. And, and this small resurrection proves that. So our approach to God changes. Our understanding of the afterlife is clarified, changed there. And the last thing that changes is hearts. The hearts of any human being can now be changed because of this. Verse 54, take a look. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. When you witness what Christ endured, When you hear his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you realize what he was doing in that moment and that it changed everything, you realize how amazing the grace of God is. That he took your sins and the sins of the world on himself, on that cross, to bring you forgiveness, you can have faith in God. And you you say, surely this is God. And your life has changed. This is why we, in Alpha, every time we do an Alpha course, We're doing one right now. People come to faith in God. Why? Because the first question they ask is, who was Jesus? And the second question is, why did he die on the cross? And if you know who Jesus is and why he died on that cross, then your heart can be open to faith. This is is central to our faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you've, you've, you've seen what Christ did on the cross. You understand in some way And you trust and you put your faith in what was accomplished there. The soldier standing there sees it. And he sees what the religious leaders couldn't see. They accused Jesus of claiming to be the son of God, which he did claim, which he was. And he looks and said, surely that he was. And he wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't even Jewish. Here's a Gentile soldier professing faith that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Because this is true and because any heart can be changed by it, people need to know it and we need to tell it to them. And we need to, whenever you have a spiritual conversation with a friend about your faith, about God, to point it to the cross. What happened on the cross? People need to know. Because when they put their faith, because when they see what that is, hearts can be open to faith. So we pray for people. We pray for God to open doors for spiritual conversations. And and again, we're going to be, this spring, I want to focus more on this. How do I interact with people? so they might know the truth of what happened there. He takes your place. He becomes sin. He receives what sin deserves. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says it so that you never have to say it. Because it's been paid for. You can have perfect fellowship with God. Changes your approach to God. Changes our view of life and eternal life. And it changes hearts. It did then and it does today. Let us pray. Father... These are, this is the center of our faith, Lord. We, this, is, this is why we gather. This is why, this is how we know you, because you've done it. You've accomplished it, and you took it on. So we give you the glory.
We humbly receive it. We look at your grace and say, this is amazing. We, 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 give you, we give you glory, Lord. But we do pray, Lord, that we would take it from here and that we would share it and that we would proclaim it with our lives, with our words and our actions, Lord, in every way. Lord, that it would just continue to bear fruit in this world, this amazing sacrifice, this amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.